Happy Monday and welcome to Not Boring. That, of course, was Jumpin' Jack Flash by the Rolling Stones. And today we're talking about one of my favorite Jumpin' Jack Flashes, Jack Dorsey. Today's a fun one because uh, it's a collaboration with a writer that I love to read uh, and makes me smarter every time I do. His name is Mark Rubenstein and he writes Net Interest. You can check it out at netinterest.substack.com. And today we're talking about why Jack Dorsey runs Twitter and Square differently, or does he? Let's get to it. Jack of two trades. You don't know Jack. Why is Jack Dorsey so much worse at being the CEO of Twitter than he is at being the CEO of Square? That was the question that kicked this whole thing off. After Mark Rubenstein wrote Hip to be Square in December, I emailed him with that question. Mark is a former hedge fund manager who writes a brilliant newsletter, Net Interest, about all things finance and fintech. His fund participated in the Square IPO back in 2015. I understand Twitter. Mark understands Square. Together, we could crack this. The company's relative product velocity and stock prices make the contrast stark. Since its initial public market struggles, Square has been an absolute rocket ship. If you had bought Square at the November 19, 2015 IPO price of $9, you would have been up 25 times by the time that Mark wrote about the company on December 18, 2020. Twitter, meanwhile, was up only 24% between its November 7, 2013 IPO and December 18, 2020. Jack's Square had performed 100 times better than Jack's Twitter, despite two years less time in the public markets. The question was so obvious, Jack was clearly a terrible CEO at Twitter and a great CEO at Square, and we certainly weren't, certainly weren't the first people to ask it. Elliott Management launched an activist campaign in February 2020 that rested on, Jack is the CEO of two companies and he's doing a bad job at this one, as one of its core tenets. But despite the obviousness of the question, it didn't have an obvious answer. So we decided to team up. Mark contributing his knowledge on Square, me adding my perspective on Twitter, to see if there was some way to square the apparent contradiction. We agreed to publish after Square announced Q4 earnings in February. And then, Twitter got its groove back. It acquired Substack competitor review, launched Clubhouse competitor spaces, reported strong earnings, and blew expectations out of the water with an ambitious and aggressive analyst day last week. Jack even acknowledged that the company has moved way too slowly, and set a goal to double the product cadence while doubling revenue by 2023. Since Mark and I first spoke on December 18th, Twitter is up 37%. The obvious question, why is Jack such a great CEO at Square and such a bad Twitter CEO, became a lot less obvious. Some new, more illuminating ones emerged in its place, such as, assuming Jack runs the companies in largely the same way, why might they perform so differently? The answer to that explains why it's so much harder to actually run companies than it is to write about them and come up with fun product ideas. The differences in the way that Jack runs his two companies have been literally litigated into the ground, but exploring the similarities and what they say about both companies' futures is a more fascinating endeavor. Zooming out and looking ahead, Square and Twitter have a lot more in common than meets the eye. Today, we'll unpack that by covering the Jack round, back to square one, putting the network into Square, old Twitter, Twitter's new groove, and going back to the original question. And look, we get why Jack's dual roles make people uncomfortable. No one's ever done it quite like him. Jack round. Some Twitter shareholders don't love the fact that Jack Dorsey runs both Twitter and Square, 
for reasons ranging from time management to performance to conflict of interest. Square shareholders don't seem to mind. Winning takes care of everything. It's not surprising that they're concerned. Very few people run two public companies. Steve Jobs did it. After he was ousted from Apple, Jack's Idol acquired Lucasfilm's animation studio and renamed it Pixar. Jobs took the company public in 1995, returned to Apple as CEO in 1996, and ran both companies until Disney acquired Pixar in 2006. That was Steve Jobs, and even he, the Zeus of tech CEOs, got kidney stones from the stress of running two companies. Carlos Ghosn ran both Renault and Nissan after orchestrating the Renault-Nissan-Mitsubishi alliance, which tied the three companies through a cross-sharing agreement. The multi-CEO role made sense because of the close relationships between the companies, and Ghosn apparently had a few interests had few interests outside of work besides watching soccer. Today, Ghosn is an internationally wanted fugitive hiding out in Lebanon with an Interpol red notice on his head after allegations by the Japanese government that he underreported his salary and grossly misused company funds. So, And Elon Musk leads both public Tesla and might as well be public $74 billion SpaceX. He's a hard-charging mega-genius who does more at each of those companies than most CEOs do at one, and it's impossible to argue with his performance. And then there's Jack. Jack is laid back, travels often, already worked from home one day a week pre-COVID, told Forbes that he, quote, spends 90% of my time with people who don't report to me, which allows for serendipity because I'm walking around the office all the time, and was pushed out of Twitter when he ran just that one company, in part because he would leave the office early to take fashion design classes. Ev Williams famously gave him an ultimatum in the early days. You can either be a dressmaker or the CEO of Twitter. In 2019, Jack made waves by saying that he wanted to move to Africa. His resume does not scream workaholic. As Twitter's public market performance dragged between 2013 and 2020, shareholders became increasingly vocal and litigious. In December 2019, Scott Galloway called for his ouster. In March 2020, Elliott Management and Silver Lake took seats on the board as part of an activist campaign that called for Jack's head. And just last week, a shareholder sued Jack and Twitter's board, claiming that Jack breached his fiduciary duty by giving advertisers access to users' private data, often to the great benefit of Square, Jack's ownership in which is worth nearly eight times as much as his Twitter holdings. Jack would argue that office hours worked do not equal quality of work. On Rich Kleiman's The Boardroom Out of Office podcast, Dorsey said that he would, quote, rather optimize for making every hour meaningful or every minute meaningful than I would maximizing the numbers of hours or minutes I'm working on a thing. He called the idea that you need to work 20 hours and sleep four because you read that Elon Musk does bullshit and detailed a morning routine that includes meditation and an 80 minute walk to work while listening to podcasts, plus an intermittent fasting routine that has him skip breakfast and lunch. He told Kleiman he works at Twitter in the morning and square in the afternoon and evening before making dinner and winding down. Jack's publicly stated philosophy is that by focusing on fewer decisions with more focus, he's able to make better decisions when they matter most. Plus, he doesn't even think that he should be making most of the decisions, opting instead to put more power in the hands of the people around him. On a February 2019 Twitter earnings call, he said, quote, I think my job as the CEO, whether it be at one company or two, is very simple. I need to build optionality for the organization and that is optionality within the leadership. So the way I think about it is I want to make sure that we're building leaders around me that I could imagine carrying the company forward. Hearing that at the time, when Twitter was trading at 32% below its IPO price after five years as a public company, it must have sounded like, to steal a phrase from Jack, bullshit. 
Twitter employees have complained that it's hard to know who to go to for a final call when Jack's MIA. But now, two years later, with Twitter's stock price up 157% since that quote, and after an analyst day at which the company announced a bold new plan and an inspired product vision, it's worth considering whether Jack's self-removal from the weeds really does allow his companies to make better strategic decisions. As I wrote in how Twitter got its group back, whether accidentally or through an ultra-attuned third eye and a zen-like ability to withstand half a decade's worth of criticism, he's put Twitter in a surprisingly strong strategic position. In other words, maybe Jack's running Twitter a lot more like he's run Square than back to square one. Square never started out imagining that one day its product would feature in hip-hop lyrics. It started out a whole lot more boring than that, as a dongle that retailers could plug into their phones to swipe credit cards. Jim McKelvey had the idea in his glassmaking studio in St. Louis, Missouri. A customer came in with her eye on an orange-yellow double-twist glass spout for her bathroom. The spout had been gathering dust on McKelvey's shelf for several years, so when the customer pointed to it, he was keen to make a quick sale. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to take her credit card, so the deal fell through. After she'd left, he looked down at his phone and wondered, given what else it could do, why that device couldn't process credit cards. McKelvey had known Jack Dorsey since he was 16. Jack's mom, Marcia, ran a coffee shop that McKelvey would frequent. When he wasn't glassblowing, he was managing a digital publishing business, and through Marcia, he roped Jack in as an intern. They kept in touch, and in 2008, McKelvey called Jack to kick around some ideas for a new venture. Jack had just been ousted from Twitter, so they agreed to pair up and pursue the dongle idea. Jack and Jim's big idea was less the technology inside the dongle, which they didn't even patent, and more that there was a huge untapped market out there for merchants too small for the traditional payments industry to target. The key was to keep costs down, which they could do by aggregating the huge volume of small transactions that these small merchants booked. At the time, there were 30 million businesses in America doing less than $100,000 of annual sales. 24 million of them didn't accept credit cards. That was the pair's market opportunity. They called the company Squirrel, until they spotted someone else had taken the name. That someone being Apple. So Jack did what he'd done at Twitter. Today, Twitch is the world's leading live streaming platform for gamers. But it was the original name of Twitter, an homage to the motion people make when their phones buzz with a new message. The name didn't resonate with the team, so they opened up a dictionary to find something close. From Twitch to Twitter, and from Squirrel to Square. Over the next few years, Square would make itself invaluable to its customers. Drawing inspiration from Apple, it combined hardware and software into an integrated system. The dongle itself was given away for free, and merchants would pay a very simple fee linked to transaction volume. The integrated systems allowed Square to add new features that entrenched its positions with customers features like working capital, invoicing, and payroll, all to help merchants run and grow their businesses. None of this was especially networky, though. Just because one merchant has a dongle doesn't mean the merchant next door needs to get a dongle. Sure, the sleek white square may have looked cool enough for people to want one, but the social dynamics underpinning that weren't intrinsic to the business model. In addition, Square was giving up a lot of its economics. In payments, there's a trade-off between being part of an open network and being a closed network. The open network, operating on the rails of card associations like Visa and MasterCard, allows a cardholder flexibility to use their card almost anywhere. But participants have to share the economics. In Square's case, merchants pay a rate of 3% on transactions, but Square has to distribute 2% out to others in the network, leaving only 1% for itself. In a closed network, the operator maintains their own ledger and can move money from the cardholder side to the merchant side freely, 
retaining all the economics for itself. Square's first attempt to bridge this gap was Square Wallet. The wallet gave consumers payment functionality which they could use at participating merchants. Square would be able to keep both the consumer side of the transaction and the merchant side within its own walls. It wasn't a success. Perhaps it was too early, perhaps some merchant adoption wasn't ubiquitous enough, and perhaps Square didn't invest sufficiently in customer acquisition. Whatever the reason, it was closed down. Its replacement, Square Order, didn't fare too well either. That was fine. With a stable merchant business at its base, Square hasn't been afraid to experiment on new businesses that have the potential to both stand alone and ultimately bridge the gap. One such experiment that did stick was Cash App, putting the network into Square. Introduced as Square Cash in 2013, Cash App was devised during a hackathon as a way to make peer-to-peer payments, splitting the check at a restaurant, sharing the cost of an Airbnb, that kind of thing. By the end of 2016, Cash App had 3 million monthly average users. Today, it has more than 36 million. Unlike the merchant side of the business, the consumer Cash App side exhibits very clear network effects. If your friend has it, you want them to pay you back, you need it too. Square seeded these effects with viral marketing campaigns and money giveaways, using Twitter as a particularly effective acquisition tool. ARK Invest shows how Cash App's monthly active users correlates with its Twitter follower count. The strategy kept customer acquisition costs exceptionally low. Last year, there were less than $5 per customer, which is absurd in fintech. In addition to viral marketing, the company reprised the playbook that fueled growth so effectively on the merchant side. That playbook has three elements. Make the product free and simple to use, target an underserved customer base, and layer in adjacent services. In this case, the underserved customer base is the underbanked segment of the population, for whom Cash App provides an alternative to a bank account. Although the earliest Cash App adopters came for the network, the ability to pay their friends, more recent adopters have come for the utility of a functioning bank account substitute. That's especially been the case over the period of the pandemic where Cash App has been used to receive stimulus funds. Layering in adjacent services is the key to unlocking economics in what is, at core, a free product. Over the past few years, Cash App added a lot of new products. Rewards, Boost, Stock Trading, Bitcoin, Direct Deposits, Business Accounts, and Cash Card. The contribution these products make is broadening. While only one of them made more than $100 million in gross profit in 2019, Four of them surpassed that in 2020. But the model isn't simply about cross-selling. It's about engagement, too. Cash App benefits from the compounding effect of growing its customer base while also increasing engagement and monetization per customer. Around a quarter of Cash App monthly active customers engage on a daily basis. That's not as high as Twitter, but for financial services, it's pretty good. In the fourth quarter, the average gross profit per customer reached $41. Customer who use multiple products generate three to four times higher gross profit than the average. Cash card is the most popular, one in four Cash App customers use it, but Bitcoin is catching up at one in 10. The compounding comes from the higher rates of engagement customers with multiple products produce. Those who use the Boost Rewards feature, for example, spend two times more on their cash card than other customers. Acquire, engage, sell. It's a simple but highly effective model. This year, Square is going to turbocharge that model. They plan to do $800 to $900 million of incremental investment. They continue to look for new ways to connect product lines within Cash App, and they're getting closer to being able to mesh the consumer-facing Cash App side of the business with the merchant-facing seller side. Cash App began 2020 contributing just over a quarter of the group's combined gross profit, 
but it left 2020 contributing nearly half. As it hits scale, there will be opportunities to close up pieces of the network, picking up where Square Wallet failed. Jack said on his recent earnings call, quote, we've done a lot of internal connections between the two ecosystems, and now we're focused on more of the customer-facing connections. No doubt we'll hear about it on Twitter when it happens. Old Twitter. Square users came for the utility as Square added in a network. Twitter users came for the network as Twitter searched for its utility. Square's dual-tracked growth strategy has gone something like this. Focus on the core customer, the small merchant, and add features to the core product in order to retain and grow with them. Experiment with new ways of building a network product in parallel in lightweight ways that don't mess with the main product, and ultimately combine the two to create a closed network. Twitter, on the other hand, started with the network and all of the inherent messiness that large networks of humans imply. And it tried to build, monetize, and experiment with it while keeping it from breaking and figuring out its utility. Oh, and it's done all of that under a revolving door of leaders with different priorities and varying vision horizons. As a result, Twitter and Square's product development paths have looked very different. Square with kind of a straight line up on the merchant side with some experimental offshoots until it finally hit on Cash App, and Twitter just kind of up and down, fits and starts. For most of Twitter's history, it felt like it was being pulled too fast, like it was playing catch up and paying for its past sins. In engineering, they called those past sins technical debt. Before Twitter, there was Odeo, an audio blogging platform founded by Noah Glass and backed by Ed Williams. Jack was just a blue-haired Odeo engineer then. When Apple released podcasts in 2006, the team decided Odeo was dead on arrival and scrambled for ideas. Jack brought Noah and Ev the idea for public status messages based on a similar feature LiveJournal, rest in peace, had just rolled out. And after a two week sprint, Twitter was born. After a slow first year, Twitter caught fire when it won best startup at South by Southwest in 2007 and attracted celebrities like Ashton Kutcher and Justin Bieber who raced CNN to become the first account with 1 million followers. Kutcher won. Twitter got bigger, faster than anyone on the team imagined, and as it caught fire, its infrastructure, mainly built during the two-week sprint, was burning down. Twitter's fail whale was a familiar sight to any of the platform's early users. In 2008, concerned that Jack was too preoccupied by extracurricular pursuits like fashion design classes, Ev Williams and the board removed him as CEO and put Ev in charge. He lasted two years, until the board fired him and replaced him with his friend and Twitter COO, Dick Costolo, in 2010. People bemoan the fact that Twitter was neck and neck with Facebook in 2010 and blew it and point to that as yet another reason that Jack needs to go. But a lot of the blame can rightly be placed on Costello's shoulders. Under Costello, Twitter professionalized and it did some great things. It started making money via promoted tweets and promoted trends. It brought on Adam Bain to run revenue and it went public in 2013. But it also made bad moves that put Twitter in the predicament it was in coming into 2020, including shutting out third-party developers, launching the Twitter music for iPhone, slow, slowing user growth and engagement, and it made a bunch of acquisitions, including TweetDeck, Mopub, TacCommerce, Niche, and Vine, which it then famously shut down in 2016. Importantly, it made the mistake that professional non-founder CEOs are often criticized for, focusing too much on short-term revenue optimization at the expense of long-term strategy. When the company failed to even optimize revenue in the short term, missing quarterly targets throughout 2015, Costello was out and Jack was back in, at least temporarily. At the time, Jack was already running Square and accepted the Twitter CEO position on an interim basis. 
interim has turned into more than five years at the helm. When Jack took over, he inherited the equivalent of a baseball team that gutted its farm system to go all in on winning now and lost. In Q4 2015, Jack's first as returned CEO, Twitter experienced the first quarter in its history of declining monthly active user growth. The Twitter Jack came back to had a Frankenstein infrastructure and an ad product that was nearly impossible to use on a self-serve basis, meaning that the majority of its ad revenue came from large brands' awareness budgets as opposed to more measurable and faster-to-sale direct response advertising. And Twitter, in its rush to grow MAUs and go global, had started to become the cesspool that it's criticized as being today. In the piece that Professor Galloway wrote on February 5th, overhauling Twitter, he included a Twitter stock chart as part of his arsenal of arguments that Jack needs to go. He argued that Trump's presidency saved the platform, and I called him out for using a large version of Trump's head to paper over the nine months of flat growth post-election. I missed something obvious, though. Most of the 63% decline in Twitter's stock price that he highlights came before Jack was reinstated as CEO. The prof is using Costello's performance to argue that Jack isn't fit to be CEO. And Twitter, of course, is up 36% in under a month since the prof hit publish. Certainly, Jack has not acted as quickly over the five years since he retook Twitter's top spot. He, too, got distracted by flashy external things, like the rights to the NFL's Thursday Night Football. He didn't fix Twitter's ad products soon enough. But if you're going to fire Jack for his underperformance, where would you have done it? In his first year as CEO? During the run-up the company had in his second year? You could make the case that you could have fired Jack between 2017 and 2019, but he should be safe now. Because if you look at the past two years and Twitter's recent announcements, the question is not, why is Jack worse at being Twitter CEO than Square? It's, doesn't it kind of look like Jack is making some Square-like moves at Twitter? Twitter's new groove. Part of the key to Square's staying power, the reason that it was able to stay alive long enough to iterate its way to Cash App, was that it was building off a stable base. Square's merchant or seller business grew solidly, like B2B products can, with a clear, if unspectacular, business model from day one. That's something that Twitter never had. So in 2019, after a sluggish first few years in his second tenure, Jack decided to start fresh and rebuild the company's ad infrastructure from the ground up. When the pandemic hit, it redoubled its focus on revenue products. And it also spent a ton of time and attention on what it calls health, reducing toxicity in the Twitter conversation and on surviving the 2020 US presidential election. That is unsexy work that takes time to show up in the numbers. Would a full-time, focused, hard-charging CEO have fixed the infrastructure earlier? Maybe, but they may have put more emphasis on ad sales and MAU growth, created new formats on top of existing infrastructure, and tried to fight their way out of the hole. In the uncharitable interpretation, Jack's laissez-faire part-time CEO-ship cost Twitter years of valuable development time. In the charitable interpretation, Jack's meditative approach was exactly what the company needed in order to pause, reset, rebuild, reprioritize, and unleash a wave of creativity. In either case, it's hard to interpret what's going on at Twitter today as anything but positive. Of course, there are the numbers. Twitter reported earnings the day after I wrote how Twitter got its groove back, and everything continues to move in the right direction. There are 192 million monetizable daily active users, which is 27% growth, $1.29 billion in revenue, 28% year-over-year growth, 
a 31% year-over-year increase in ad revenue thanks to new formats, stronger attribution, and improved targeting, a 50% year-over-year growth in mobile application promotion revenue. That's their new product, and, and it's showing a lot of promise, and $222 million in net income, which is 17% year-over-year growth. More importantly, with its infrastructure rebuilt, Twitter is setting its sights on the future, where Jack operates, like Square can. It's finally doing all of the things that armchair analysts like me, who don't have to worry about paying down technical debt, have been saying it should do for a while. In how Twitter got its groove back, I covered Twitter's push into newsletters with the acquisition of Review and audio chat with Spaces. They're savvy moves given Twitter's position as the top of funnel for the creator economy. And in any other year of Twitter's history, they would have been enough to satisfy Twitter and keep it busy. But this is the new Twitter. On Thursday, Twitter held its analyst day. Jack kicked off the event by confronting the three main reasons people don't believe in the company. Quote, we're slow, we're not innovative, and we're not trusted. Let's break those down. We're slow. Jack agreed that the company has been slow because it's been working itself out of technical debt for years. We're not innovative. Jack tied lack of innovation to slowness. If we can't ship code faster, we can't experiment and iterate. And every launch comes with massive expectation and cost. He also highlighted that innovation isn't always flashy. They made the decision to deprioritize everything except making the core timeline experience better, and the results have shown up in the increase in monetizable daily active users. As someone who joined Twitter in 2009 but only became an addict in 2019, I can attest to the fact that it's working. And three, we're not trusted. Again, Jack agreed. He committed to more transparency, already evident in the way the company is building spaces in public, giving people better moderation tools, enabling a marketplace approach to relevance algorithms, and funding its open source media standard called Blue Sky. While all three criticisms are important, speed and innovation are the most directly relevant to the square comparison, and Twitter wasted no time proving they were serious. When Jack handed over the mic, his team made two new major product announcements within a month of review and spaces. That feels a lot more Square-like than old Twitter-like. Twitter's head of consumer product, Kayvon Bakepour, announced the communities, and its chief design officer, Dantley Davis, announced Superfollows. Superfollows are exciting, not just because they're shiny and new, and not just because they validate my prediction for Twitter's subscription products, one that allows top creators to monetize and then takes a cut, versus the profs, which is to make people with large followings pay a monthly subscription fee, Superfollows are an opportunity for Twitter to go from an open network that leaks value to everyone else to a closed one and to combine two ecosystems that they've been building to create an internal economy, kind of like Square. What is Twitter building? Remember the playbook that Square runs on both the merchant and cash app sides of the business? One, make the product free and simple to use. Two, target an underserved customer base. And three, layer in adjacent services. That actually looks a whole lot like what Twitter is doing. Make products free and simple to use. Twitter has always been free, but it hasn't always been simple to use. The fact that over a billion people have created Twitter accounts and there are only 192 million monetizable daily active users speaks to that. Twitter is working to fix that challenge by focusing on topics, which make it easier for people to get value out of Twitter immediately without a curated follow list. Target an undeserved customer base. Twitter spent 15 years trying to figure out who and what it's for. Given its flurry of recent moves, it feels like it's finally figured out its core customers, creators. This group has actually been underserved for a long time in terms of the ability to get distribution, the most valuable asset for any creator. Small businesses have Facebook, big brands have nearly every channel imaginable, video creators have YouTube and TikTok, 
hot people have Instagram, but writers, podcasters, analysts, comedians, and other more intellectual creators haven't had a reliable growth channel. Now they have Twitter. Layer in adjacent services. With the infrastructure rebuild under its belt, Twitter finally began layering in adjacent services at a square-like pace, introducing reviews, spaces, superfollow, and communities in the first two months of 2021. With the stated goal of doubling its development velocity by 2023, we suspect this is just the beginning. The ecosystem that Twitter is building looks a lot more like Square's than other social networks, too. Square built up two ecosystems, Merchants and Cash App, and is working to connect them. Twitter has two ecosystems, too. They were merged from the beginning, which created a lot of the messiness. The experience for a creator is so much different than that of a consumer, but makes the future promising if indeed they figured it out. Twitter's merchant equivalent are the creators on the platform. Until now, Twitter has been an open network and creators haven't had any way to monetize directly, so they've built audience on Twitter and made money off platform. Its consumers are Cash App, the millions of individuals bound together by a network and an internal currency, likes and retweets, that they spend on creators. With Twitter's recent moves, it's moving to close the network and let creators build audience and a business in one app. Given Jack's experience at Square, we wouldn't be surprised to see Twitter roll out its own internal currency, whether itself or via partnership with Square. In a way, it already has one, likes and retweets. We would imagine that Twitter will come up with innovative ways to turn attention into currency. We would certainly be willing to give someone free superfollow access if they brought us 100 relevant followers, for example. Since Twitter controls the entire ecosystem, it can experiment with value exchanges in ways that other platforms can't. See Facebook's DM. Over time, we'll see Twitter, like Square, add more products into the combined ecosystem. E-commerce is a no-brainer move at some point, as are improvements to the DM and bookmarking experience. Twitter could even charge creators for those improved products with money they're already making in the app from Superfollows to save on transaction fees. With the addition of Superfollows, Twitter is in a new spot, the lead. It will be the first major U.S. social network with subscriptions, a way for creators on the platform to make money directly from consumers on the platform. It will go from being the leakiest platform to the one that has the potential to capture the most value within its ecosystem. It feels very weird to be optimistic about Twitter's roadmap, but now that old Twitter is finally new Twitter, 15 years in and five years after Jack's return, Twitter users and investors can finally look at Jack's square tenure as a good indicator of what's to come instead of as a distraction. Back to the original question. So why is Jack so much worse at being the CEO of Twitter than he is at being the CEO of Square? Well, we don't think he is. Jack came into Square with a clean slate and his early Twitter experience under his belt, and he built something fresh from scratch with the thoughtfulness and infrastructure in place to scale and experiment. It got some things wrong, moved on, and iterated into Cash App, which has breathed new life into the company. Combining the merchant business and Cash App may give Square the holy grail of financial products, a low customer acquisition cost closed network with an increasing number of opportunities for engagement and monetization. Jack came back into a, a Twitter that was broken, hobbled together mess on the engineering business and product side. The company has had to deal with regulation and being hauled in front of Congress, while Square has been able to avoid regulatory clashes so far. Maybe a full-time CEO would have fixed all of that more quickly, but five years later, Jack is where he was a few years ago at Square, with a core product that's humming, strong infrastructure, and an appetite for innovation. Twitter Jack still has a lot to prove. Twitter's ad products are showing promise, but the revenue they generate is still relatively small. The company has announced cool products, but some don't even have scheduled launch dates. 
That said, the narrative and momentum are back on Jack's side. It's going to be hard to push him out when things are going well. And with time, velocity, and the attention of the world's most valuable users, Twitter, for once, has the deck stacked in its favor. The future is bright. It's a stretch to say that Jack planned this all along. Too many things had to fall into place in just the right way. And giving Jack too much credit might be too much founder hero worshipping. It's clear that the people below Jack at both Twitter and Square are the ones doing most of the hard work to make this all happen. But as it stands, Jack currently runs two companies with combined market caps of $165 billion and a clear path to $500 billion in combined market cap within five years. He's built two companies that have had a bigger impact on giving power to the person than nearly any other. Square, by blurring the lines between B2C and B2B, and giving small businesses a growing suite of e-commerce and financial tools, and Twitter by being the place that the creator economy goes to build and now monetize an audience. Now that Twitter investors feel less slighted by the time Jack spends at Square, maybe there's even the potential for the two companies to work more closely together, to combine the two ecosystems they've built to make it easy for Square small businesses to reach its customers on Twitter, and for Twitter users to pay their favorite creators with Cash App. Jack designed his ecosystem such that he can stay above the fray and plan what's next while his deputies do the hard day-to-day work. Some might call that laziness. Some might complain about his trips to French Polynesia or his plans to move to Africa, but it's working. Twitter and Square have more optionality today than nearly any other companies on earth, just the way that Jack wanted all along. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. We're skipping Thursday and we'll actually be back Sunday morning with a special announcement. So stay tuned and I will talk to you then. Have a good week.